0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. And as you're turning to the book of James, I wonder if you remember where you were on January the 28th, 1986. That is the date that the space shuttle Challenger lifted off from Cape Canaveral. It was the 25th flight of a space shuttle that year. And the mission was to place a communication satellite in orbit Uh, and to study Halley's Comet. I had just turned 10 years old on January the 12th. I was in fourth grade and have a foggy memory uh, of watching the launch at school. Now, if you know the story, unfortunately, you know that 73 seconds after liftoff, uh, to the horror of everyone watching, uh, the space shuttle Challenger blew up, killing all seven astronauts on board, including uh, Kristen McAuliffe, who was a teacher from Concord, New Hampshire, now, I have no idea how uh, this was even possible for them to figure out after uh, the accident. But the investigation found that the cause of the explosion uh, was these two O-rings, right, that were in the, the solid rocket booster. If you know anything about, you know, space shuttles and, uh, and NASA, uh, you know that you have those two things on the side, right? The cylinders on the side, the solid rocket boosters, and there were some O-rings, That because of the extremely cold weather that morning in Florida, uh, these O-rings stiffened to to the point where uh, they were no longer able to seal out these incredibly hot and inflammable gases. And so as hot pressurized gas burned through, it got into the the big center uh, cylinder, the external propellant tank it's called, uh, and it was all over. Now, now, those O-rings were actually 12 feet in diameter. You think 12 feet, that's like taller than a basketball goal, right? That's big. But compared to a space shuttle, it's very, very small, right? This morning in our text, we are looking at something very, very small that, had the exa- that has and can have the exact same devastating consequences that those O-rings had for those seven astronauts and even for our country Back in those days, we are looking in our text at the tongue and at the words that we speak. The tongue, James is going to tell us, can have powerful and even devastating effects. And we are called as God's people to think about what we say, how we use our tongue, how we speak to those image bearers around us. So hear God's word. We're going to read chapter three, verses one through twelve. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is very likely a passage that you are familiar with. Uh, you've probably also heard the verses that we've already looked at in the book of James that, that speak about speech, such as chapter 1, verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Or chapter 1, verse 26, that, that says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Right? It's, it's meaningless. It's all fake. Well, the book of James actually has a lot to say about speech, a lot more than I think I'd ever seen sort of in one fell swoop, kind of, you know, all at once, right? Than just these three passages, that I, the one I've read and the two I've just alluded to. For, for instance, chapter 2, verse 12, exhorts us to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Chapter 4, verse 1, mentions quarrels and conflicts, which always have a verbal component to them. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 11 tells us not to to speak evil against one another. Chapter 5, verse 9 commands us not to grumble against one another. Chapter 5, verse 12 is about oaths and vows, right? Oral, verbal things. But but there's also several explicit references in this letter to things that we say, right? That can either be true or false, wise or foolish, loving or cruel, godly or ungodly. For instance, chapter 1, verse 13 James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Right? That's a heresy. That's false. In chapter 2, verse 3, James says, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit over here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So again, here's James saying, here's an example of ways you can use your words in a very belittling, haughty sinful way. Or chapter two, verse 15 and 16, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, again, here's an explicit example, go in peace, be warned, to be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? All right? so here's sort of a flippant use of, of words, a thoughtless use of words, an unloving use of words. Or chapter four, verses 13 and 16, come now you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, here's James saying, look, don't say this, but say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast verbally, orally with your words and your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Right, before studying for this sermon, I don't think I had ever seen all that James has to say about speaking, and about our words, sort of in one fell swoop, one overarching view. But I hope that that little run through makes you understand how important it is to James that we take thought to our words. Right? Nearly all of us here at Pear Orchard can speak. And if you can speak, then you do speak. But we often don't think twice about what we say, about how we say it, or about when we say it. And yet the number of references that I've just rattled through here in James' letters show us that God cares deeply about our speech. It's vital that we pay close attention to the words that come out of our mouth. I mean, here we are, we're we're thinking often here about the incarnation. We've been looking at the uses of the incarnation in morning worship these past few weeks. We are speaking about the one who calls himself the word. Do you think that Jesus cares about our words? Of course he does. These words are one of the components of our deeds, right? That, that, that prove whether our faith is genuine or not as we saw last time in the end of chapter two. But James here isn't only gonna tell us that we ought to examine our speech. He's also going to tell us how difficult, no, how impossible it is to tame the tongue. I want us to look at this passage under sort of the two uh, sections uh, uh, that James lays out for us. First, the words of teachers and and wannabe teachers. And secondly, the words of all of us. So first, the words of, of teachers. James begins with this warning to those who are and those who want to be teachers in the Lord's church. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, in the first century, uh, the teacher, the rabbi, the scribe, uh, whether in the pagan world, the the world of Judaism, the early church, uh, it it was a highly respected and and valued uh, calling and office It was also, of course, necessary for those who need to be instructed. And so because of these realities about this office, about this calling, as you might imagine, it led many to to become teachers in the church, to want to be teachers and actually to become teachers who had no true call from God, who were not qualified, who really just wanted to take advantage of the privileges of being a teacher While shirking the responsibilities of the office, who didn't understand, as James lays out for us here, the dangers of being a teacher. Hence the need for this warning that James gives us, a warning that is still vital for us to hear today. James is saying here essentially what Jesus said in Luke chapter 20 when he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows', widows houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. And then Jesus says these words, these will receive greater condemnation. And that's what James is repeating here, right? We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But why? What's the reason? Why are we who teach judged with greater strictness? Why do we receive a greater, a more severe judgment on the last day? Well, for several reasons. First, the, the teacher has greater knowledge, right? He has more opportunity to study God's word because he's a teacher. He also has greater influence on people right, because of his position, He's the one who has authority in in the church, and so uh, he he has set himself up as an example of the flock. He claims to know the truth, and so as the saying goes, he ought to know better, right? So he's going to be held to a higher standard because he ought to know better. But also think about this, a teacher, if there's anyone who speaks a lot of words in his life, it's a teacher, right? That's what he does for a living. He talks for a living, You're trying to instruct, you're trying to to fill the mind with truth or with skill. You're you're trying to convince and persuade, to move the will, to move the affections, to change people. The Proverbs 10 verse 19 reminds us, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. And so the teacher has great potential to lead people astray, whether from the truth by speaking what is false or from righteousness and holiness by living in a hypocritical way that contradicts what he himself is actually teaching. It's so easy for a teacher to subvert someone's faith or their morality. And so in a nutshell, again, James is just repeating the principle that his older brother had declared back in Luke chapter 12. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Greater responsibility brings greater expectations, as well as greater accountability. So this is a sobering passage, but but not just for pastor teachers, right? Teaching elders, ruling elders, or those who want to be elders in the church, who want to be a teacher in a formal way. I think this passage applies more generally, more broadly to anyone right, in the church who, who wants to be or who is already in a teaching role, whether Ladies teaching other ladies, whether men and women teaching uh, adult Sunday school, or we don't have women teaching Sunday school, but men teaching Sunday school, women teaching and, and children Sunday school, men and women teaching youth group. You see what's going on here. We are all in some way, shape, or form teaching, perhaps. Some have gifts of teaching or using those gifts. Obviously, the church needs teachers, and God is gifted and has called people to be teachers. So I hope that you don't hear what I'm saying. If you're a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study teacher, say, well, I'm out. I quit, All right? John's already left the room, so he, he isn't hearing this, right? Uh, but we who teach, whatever your setting of teaching might be, must always keep in mind the weightiness of what you are doing as you study, as you prepare, and as you teach. You must guard what you say and how you say it carefully. And you must be careful to apply what you are going to say to others first to your own life. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 3 about the Pharisees this, they say things and they do not do them. They will be held to a stricter judgment. So this passage, this verse, verse 1, should compel us who teach to humility, to prayer, dependent prayer as we study And as we actually teach. And if you want to be a teacher in whatever capacity is appropriate for you, you need to count the cost before you sign on the dotted line. James wants you to embark upon this task with your eyes wide open to what you're signing up for, both now and on Judgment Day. Let's Let's not forget what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, the righteousness of Christ will cover us in the sight of the Father so that we will not be condemned along with the rest, those who are trusting in their own righteousness, And yet Paul is here telling us in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that there will be a judgment according to works and the Lord will hold teachers, says James, to a higher standard, to a stricter judgment. And so I didn't want to preach this passage without highlighting verse one because it's such an important reality that we need to keep in mind in the church. But it's not just those who speak vocationally, who, who speak as they use their gifts to teach, who need to think about their words. And so James in verse two transitions from addressing those who desire to speak as a calling to every person who's reading this letter. And so I want us to think secondly about the words of all of us. In verse two, you see James affirm the universal sinfulness of mankind on this side of Eden, as well as the universal speech defect, right? That all of us have because of sin. He says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his old body. Now, of course, none of us are perfect men or women or boys or girls, because all of us stumble in what we say. Whether we take the Lord's name in vain, speak it flippantly and thoughtlessly in a way that dishonors him, whether we lie, whether we tear other people down with our words, whether we speak angrily or, or gossip, whether we judge others with our words, speak haughtily and boastfully, whether we just speak carelessly. Right? Jesus says for every careless word you speak, right, you will be judged. You'll be held accountable for the words that just flippantly come out of your mouth. And, and so James here in this passage wants to show us the, the sinfulness of our sins of, of the tongue. And so he highlights three different truths about our words, and he uses incredible word pictures to help us to see what it is he wants us to teach us about our words. And the first thing he wants to say is this. Our words are powerful, verses 3 to 5. He uses the illustration of a bit and of a rudder to show that the tongue, though small, has an outsized impact. Now, for the first century, uh, a horse would have been the strongest machine Right, that they would have known. A ship would have been the largest moving vehicle they would have known, and both of these were the only thing that anyone would have ever steered. Right, You're steering a horse with a bit, you're steering a ship with a rudder, and both are steered and are controlled and guided by very small things. A bit fits into the mouth of a horse, and yet by it, says James, right, the rider guides the large animal wherever it is that he wants it to go. A rudder is tiny compared to the ship itself, and compared to the power of the winds, and yet the pilot can use this rudder to guide the boat according to his will. In the same way, James is trying to tell us, the tongue is not a large part of our body, and yet it can do large things, whether for good or for ill. I think the the best way to understand that word, it boasts of great things, is is, is not negatively, but but in the sense that that it, it claims to control rightly the direction, the the outcomes of life, right? It, it, it makes large claims for itself, whether for good or for ill. Yeah, right? Our speech in a very real way does determine our destinies, who we are, what we do. You have a conversation with someone that can open a door at a, at a job interview or can close a door at a job interview, right? You, you, your words can, can save a life or can destroy a life. And so James is comparing the tongue to a bit, to a rudder, Right, that is small and yet does incredibly large and weighty things. But next he goes on to tell us that our words are not just powerful, they are destructive. Verses 5 to 8, he uses this image of a forest fire that's started by a small campfire or even a, a tiny spark. Right? We in America are all too familiar with forest fires. Right, We, we understand this image. It's a, it, it is a decidedly negative image. Image. For James tells us that the tongue is a fire that sets on fire and destroys the entire course of our life. Our speech corrupts, he says, and, and stains the entirety of who we are. It is in itself a world of unrighteousness. That is, all the wickedness of the world is, is expressed by the tongue in our words. He goes on to tell us that the fallen tongue is a fire because it has been set on fire by hell itself. Like the demons, it is a restless evil, full of deadly poison to wound, to harm, to kill, right? Our words are destructive, like the the thrust of a sword, Solomon says in Proverbs. We use our words to harm others. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is, is a lie that we all understand is a lie, right? We know that's not true. We've all been hurt. We've all been wounded by words. Our words are destructive. But they're, thirdly, inconsistent. You see this here in verses 9 to 12. As those made in the image of God, we are made in the image of one who communicates. right? God said, let there be light. And so communication is an integral part of, of being in God's image, of bearing that image. It's a facet of God's image that James affirms here. We have not lost in the, the fall. Right? We've been created to be speakers And so we ought to be using our words to reflect God's character. He points out that we rightly use our words to worship God and prayers spoken and prayers sung. But then we turn around in the very next hour or the very next moment, we use our words to demean other image bearers of God, which is in essence to slander and to insult the God in whose image they are made. We bless and we curse. We speak religiously, piously, and profanely. We speak lovingly and we speak hatefully. We speak as heirs of heaven one moment and children of wrath, heirs of hell the next. James is saying, look, we live so inconsistently. We, we live so nonsensically, so ridiculously. He uses images that the first century readers would have understood, a spring of water, figs and olives and, and grapes. Right? We might use images like this. If you go to the water fountain back there, it's not going to shoot out sort of fresh Drinking potable water one day and then salt water that you have to spit out the next day. Your blueberry bush isn't going to bear strawberries. Your pecan tree is not going to grow lemons. Like, we get this. Is it any wonder that James says in verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be. It ought not to be this way that we speak. Think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Right, when he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, not fitting for believers, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You know, of course, here in this last section, James is riffing off of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he's speaking about false teachers. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Our grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles... So every healthy tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire, says Jesus. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus connects this later in Matthew to the, the, the words we use, the, our speech, by saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this raises the question, how is it that a genuine believer can continue to speak sinfully and foolishly and pridefully and hatefully and cruelly? Like right, We are the rider of the horse moving the bit. We are the pilot of the ship turning the rudder. We are the ones, you and I are the ones who keep on sinning with our tongue. And James says these things ought not to be. We are in this passage called to control our tongue. And yet, notice what James says in verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. All All the animal species are under control of mankind. We have exercised our dominion over them. Humans aren't in zoos, animals are, right? That's what James is saying. But no human being can, is able to tame the tongue. We have all control over the animal kingdom, but we have no control over our speech. No one can, he says, control the tongue. And so do you see the point that James is making? He's saying, try as you might, you are powerless in yourself to change the way that you speak. Do you get that? Do you recognize that about yourself? Do you recognize that, that word sins are the hardest sins to kill? That the tongue is, is the last part of your body to get under control? Think about it. Think about the people you know that are extremely talented in dieting, right? Extremely talented in exercising, Extremely talented in sports and athletics or in time management. And yet even the most talented, the most self-controlled person you know in some area of life cannot control his speech. Has said things and continues to say things that he regrets, that he wishes he could take back, that he could put back into his mouth. All right. You see, this passage, like the law of God in general, should drive us to recognize, first and foremost, that we are sinners who stand in need of a Savior. But secondly, as the law is designed to do, this passage should drive us to Jesus Christ. It should drive us to see that Jesus came into this world born as a real, live human, fully man, but as a sinless man. Why was there a need for a virgin conception so that Jesus would not be in Adam, right, bearing that fallen nature under the guilt of Adam's first sin, but that Jesus would be sinless, free from the taint of original sin. Jesus had to be fully man and fully God in order that he might live a holy And righteous life. Jesus was tempted as we were in every way, even tempted to speak sinfully, and yet as Hebrews 4 tells us, he never sinned. He didn't sin once in speech. And why did he do this? But so as we alluded to earlier, his righteousness, his righteous speech might be credited to our account for our justification. And then at the end of his life, why did he become a man? Cur deus homo, as Anselm puts it, why the God-man? and Jesus became a man in order to die, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bear the punishment that our sinful words demanded. You see, even if we had done nothing else wrong in our life, as James chapter 2, verse 10 puts it, you remember that verse? He says, whoever keeps the whole all but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Even if you never thought or did anything wrong, you would have needed Jesus to save you from your sins of the tongue. And so this passage should kill our pride and show us that we are sinners. And I don't think we need this passage to show us, do we, that we sin in our speech. We know that. But this text sort of drives it home all the more. And this text points us again to Jesus. It shows us how perfect Jesus is in his speech. This text should drive us constantly to humility, to crying out to the Lord for forgiveness for our sins of the tongue and crying out to him for help in our sanctification as we seek to live according to his word. You see, this passage reminds us that we ought not to expect perfection in this life, But that truth, that we ought not to expect perfection in this life, should never lead us to stop caring and aiming for perfection in this life. Some of you know that I, uh, for a time, owned a little publishing company, Log College Press. I published ten booklets and six books. And I tell you, I confess that I started that publishing company out of some degree of pride that I'm not going to have any typos in my books. Zero. <laughs> Zero. And I can tell you by a shadow of a doubt, every single one of the 16 things I've published has typos in them, right? It was a very humbling experience in that regard. Um, But I did not stop striving for zero typos, right? I didn't say, oh, well, they've all got typos, so uh, let's just not even worry about them, right? That's the same way we ought to be in the Christian life. Yes, says Paul, none of us are going to, to live a perfect, sinless life. What do we do? We forget what lies behind Philippians 3. We press forward, right? Press forward to what lies ahead, to take hold of that for which also we were taken hold of by Jesus. Jesus has saved us, has died for us, redeemed us from every lawless deed, right? So that we might walk in good deeds, including the the sins of the tongue, putting these sins to death, right? With David in Psalm 141, this Passage ought to lead us to pray, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. But it should also lead us to compassion toward those who continue to speak sinfully, right? Even as we exhort them and, and call them in ourselves to guard their speech, to check their words, right? So do you see all that, that God is doing through this text? He's, he's showing you that you're a sinful speaker, He's showing you that Jesus is a sinless speaker. He's showing you that that you aren't going to be able to, to, to stop sinning with your tongue. But that you should never stop trying to stop sinning with your tongue. My brothers, these things ought not to be. And so we have humility toward God and toward one another. We are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to be angry are called to guard our speech, to check our words before we say them. A couple weeks ago, Will uh, Moon pointed out to me that there was a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote to General George Meade after the victory over uh, the Confederate troops at Gettysburg. Lincoln was very disappointed, probably even incensed, right, that his general did not sort of finish the South, right, and pursue Robert E. Lee, uh, and just destroy the Southern Army at that, that point. And, and so uh, that word got back to Meade. He turned in his letter of resignation, uh, and Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter, two and a half pages. You see, you can find it online, uh, where he is essentially telling General Meade why he has relieved him of his command, all right? And it's, it's actually a very gracious letter, uh, but here's the thing. Lincoln took that letter and put it in his desk. And on the envelope in which the letter is found, it says, to General Meade, never sent or signed. Abraham Lincoln knew better than to just send out whatever was on his mind, right? To say what was on his heart and just to say it, just let it come out of his mouth. He had a, a door, a gate, a guard over his lips. And so General Meade stayed as the commander of the the Army of the Potomac under General Grant until the end of the Civil War, right? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord enable us to, to think, to wait before we speak, to stick, to stick the letter back in the desk drawer as it were, right? Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world to give himself for us, to live for us and to die for us, that we might be a people who care about our words, And who pursue holiness and the fear of the Lord in this area of our speech. Let's stick that letter back in the drawer. Let's think before we speak to bring glory to God. Because we know that our words are powerful. We know that our words can be destructive. We know that we live so inconsistently. So by the grace of God, for the glory of God, and the glory of his son, and the spirit who indwells us, may we be those who seek to live and to speak in ways that bring honor and glory to him. Let's pray together. Father, you know each one of us, and you know how we fail to speak in ways that please you. We fail to speak in ways that are loving and kind and compassionate. Father, would you forgive us? Lord, would you forgive all of us who as teachers Lord, forget that we will be held to a higher standard. Lord, would you grant your Spirit's enabling and power that we might walk in a way that brings honor and glory and and delight to you in the way we speak to one another. Lord, particularly as we enter upon a season in which we're going to be around a lot of family members, Lord, we ask that we would particularly be keen to Think about how we talk to those that are closest to us, how we talk to those that we love the most and that love us the most. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit's power to help us to live out of our union with Jesus Christ so that we might put sin to death, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we would obey sin, but help us to be slaves to you, O Lord, Help us to be humble, even as we recognize that none of us are going to be perfect in our speech. Lord, let us be quick to seek your forgiveness, to seek forgiveness of others against whom we have spoken cruelly and wrongly. Oh Lord, would you help us to care about how we speak? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.